The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, the financial commentary wing of Reuters News. This week, the biggest story in finance and business was the beautiful game, football, soccer, whatever you want to call it. On Sunday, 12 of Europe's biggest soccer clubs announced with great fanfare their plans to form a new breakaway, quote unquote, Super League. Well, within two days, they were in full retreat as fans revolted and politicians from Britain's Boris Johnson to France's Emmanuel Macron threw shade on the whole concept. Liam Proud and Peter Thau Larson were all over the story, not least because of their teams, Arsenal and Manchester United, which were part of the action. But there's almost nobody who was involved in this process, mainly the club owners and JP Morgan, which was financing the deal, that come out smelling like anything good. But the idea may not be totally dead yet. As Liam wrote, the financial appeal of a U.S.-style sporting cartel remains irresistible for the owners of teams like Real Madrid, Juventus, and Manchester United. Barring a regulatory crackdown, it's only a matter of time before the idea returns. After that, I hand the mic over to Asia, where Pete Sweeney and Yuna Galani discuss China's terrible, no-good, bad bank. The bond market's been in a tizzy over fears that state-owned asset manager Huarong will not be able to repay its debts, including some 21 billion bucks of U.S. dollar-denominated debt. Pete and Yuna explain why the fate of this Chinese outfit matters to global investors. They ask the question, will Beijing stand behind the group half-owned by the Ministry of Finance, or will it make foreign investors carry the can? You decide. Give a listen. The only thing that people were interested, it seems, uh, around the world was soccer or football, whatever you want to call it. Peter, uh, give us a little postmortem on what happened with this. The extraordinary birth and quick uh, death of the European Super League of Soccer. Well, it was it was almost stillborn. I mean, it, it got it, it was launched on Sunday evening and for, within 48 hours, it was basically on life support. Um, but this is an idea that's been around in some various forms uh, uh, for quite a long time. Um, and basically, the idea is that you have a sport, soccer, uh, where you have uh, some very rich and well, uh, well-known well clubs. Um, and they play in Europe and they play each other uh, every year in a, in a tournament called the Champions League. But the thing about the Champions League is it's kind of like a, it's a sort of an afterthought to the national competitions that these teams play in the UK uh, or in uh, Spain or in Italy or France. Um, but actually, the sort of the clashes between the big clubs are what really attracts the audiences and also really appeals to international audiences. And so you have a, a cadre of owners now of these clubs, which include not just Middle Eastern sheikhs and Russian oligarchs, but also increasingly sort of quite financially savvy American owners, um, and they are looking for ways to kind of in increase the value of their of their investments of their clubs. And so, what they've been trying to do for a while is figure out a way whereby the European competition between the top clubs becomes the main event, and the sort of national league becomes a sort of second-rate thing. And and this was an attempt to do that. This was an basically attempt by twelve clubs to break away and say we're going to set up this midweek league between our clubs and we're just going to play each other and there'll be a competition and there'll be a sort of, uh, a, you know, what the Americans would call a playoff at the end and at the final and someone will win. Um, 
But next year, it will be the same group of clubs that comes back again. And that's the big difference. At the moment, the clubs have to qualify for the Champions League. They might not qualify. Other teams might get in. There's a chance of getting knocked out. Whereas this way, they would have the top clubs would all compete every year, guaranteed. Right. Which has, I can see the appeal for that. I mean, you know, as of course, as a Yank um, and, and so not a, a hardcore soccer fan, the idea of having, I don't know, Real Madrid playing Juventus or, or uh, Manchester United playing uh, Barcelona. And you, you, you would, that, that, those are big names. That's like, that's like the kind of thing that people in China will watch and India and all around the, around the world. And, isn't that sort of the isn't that the ideas like the, the the television and other rights are global rather than European or national? Right, that's exactly the idea. And sort of so the idea is that there's a, there's a whole load of people in China or India or wherever um, who kind of have an attachment and have a recognition of this game and an interest in the game and a recognition of the players, um, and they would like they would like to watch more of it. Um, but but you know as things are currently configured. Um, you're not you're not really sure that Barcelona is going to play Manchester United every season. It might work out that way, but it might not. One of them might not qualify. One of them might get knocked out early. So you could, this would be more of an attempt to try and sort of uh, to try and guarantee that, and then appeal to those fans uh, who might otherwise I don't know watch NBA basketball or or, or get into American football or something else. Um, the problem is that in doing this, they managed to totally alienate. Well, let's get to that. That's the, I mean, it's been so extraordinary. The just, I'm just like, Liam, you wrote uh, uh, quite a bit about this this week. And did anybody come out looking uh, good who, who was involved in this effort? I'm just trying to think like, you know, we know the fans hate it. You know, like, I don't know, governor, governments seem to hate it. Um, I, I mean, yeah. is it, there anybody it, it, that comes out looking okay in this? In a, in a polarized world, it's, it's kind of the one thing that has united, you know, increasingly tribal um, football fans. It's, everybody seems to hate this idea. You know, fans of the big clubs who are participating in it seem to hate it as well, um, which I think was kind of decisive um, in killing it in the end. But, I mean, you know, does anyone come out looking, looking good from it? Probably not. But is there a kernel of an idea? Well, which, before you get to yeah. the kernel, who comes out looking worse? I mean, that's a that's a very tough. One. I would say you know the the probably the the individual who looks absolutely worse is the Juventus boss Andrea Agnelli. Now he was head of this European clubs body, and which was supposed to be representing the interests of European clubs and was working up a kind of reformed version of this Champions League competition. And at the same time, he seems to have been kind of cooking up a completely different and contradictory plan. Um, which would totally undermine that competition behind the authorities' backs. I think is I think he's he's going to have a lot less credibility in the sport. Now he's, and, of course, he's a, his family controls Juventus, which was one of the one of the biggest clubs in this whole thing, right? Um, Juventus shares went up like fifteen percent on the day it was announced. So um, you can, I guess, if there's any proxy for who was meant to benefit the most from this, if you thought it was the club owners, well, you have no better evidence. Yeah, and they're down 14% today, and they were down yesterday. So I think that's, like you said, quite a clear reflection there. I mean, you know, just a side note on Juventus, they're in a pretty parlous financial state. Um, 
you know, they're they're part of the the kind of the Exor holding group, I guess, and they have this ultimate financial backstop, but they don't really w wash their face within that group. Um, and this was the grand plan to try and, you know, basically pull pull the, the club back from being a kind of loss making basket case, and it's it's not worked for now. So Andrea Agnelli looks bad. Now, uh, who fired their general manager? Oh, well, so, so Manchester United, well, the general, the, the, the executive vice chairman uh, at Woodward uh, announced on uh, 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 on Tuesday evening that he was um, stepping down after a long time. Um, and he's obviously very closely associated with this plan. Um, so he also comes out of it pretty well. Basically, the people, the, the owners of, the, of, of these clubs come out really bad. And, and most of them actually didn't even, the really striking thing is that most of them didn't even try and justify this plan publicly um, and, and only actually came out, if they came out at all, came out and spoke about it afterwards. So John Henry, who's the owner of Liverpool Football Club and also of the Boston Red, Red Sox, Sox, you know, recorded a sort of contrite video, which was issued uh, on Tuesday evening. But but he was he was nowhere to be seen in the pre previous 48 hours trying to sell this idea at all. And this is really the striking thing is that if you were going to do something like this, you would have to have a plan to get the fans on board, explain to them why it's a good thing, why it makes sense to them. You'd have to have a plan to sort of say, well, why this is good for football in general, announce some sort of like distribution of the revenue for grassroots sports or some kind of payment to smaller clubs who could then benefit from this somehow. Um, and you'd also have to get the politicians on board. I mean, the really amazing thing is that the, 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 the organizers of this league seem to have completely misread the mood. And so you had Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron within, within 12, 24 hours of this plan coming out, both condemning it. And meanwhile, FIFA and UEFA, the two governing sports governing bodies, both of which are, are severely compromised and, and have had all kinds of terrible scandals in the past, um, turned become the good guys in this in this situation it really is, you know you've got it wrong extraordinary FIFA, when you've made fifa like victim the victim here like look like the sad guy or the good guy that's you really you really screwed it up so and then jp morgan what was their role so they were supposed to be funding this thing in a sort of slightly unusual structure um which is actually not that unusual in, in, in football but where they would basically underwrite the um the the risk of there being no broadcast revenue so they would give the clubs the participating clubs an advance um and then they would claim that back from future um deals with tv companies and streaming companies um how this got through their kind of internal pr image um you know liability committees i, I will never know i mean it just seems so obvious that this, this would like been, a bridge yeah. It was, a, it was a bridge loan, exactly. I mean, you know, it, I mean, the FT was reporting that it had about a two, two or three percent interest rate, and it amortised over twenty-three three years. So, I mean, this is not like an extremely high-yielding investment. So, I mean, I would say if you if you if you throw in the reputational damage, they've definitely come out come out worse off than than they stood to gain from this. Okay, but there is something here. There is there is there is some kernel of of a business model that. You know, isn't going to go away as you as you if we've discussed this. What what is that? What what this will come back some variation or some variation. Yeah, I think it will inevitably. Um, so you know, this it's important to separate the kind of you know the execution of this idea, which was absolutely horrible, the totally half baked as we've discussed, from the absolute kind of 
core financial thesis, I guess, here, which is basically, you know, twofold. I think there's two reasons why this idea has legs over the long term. I mean, the first is just the globalization of the sport. You know, this is this is by far the world's most popular sport. And if you look at the regions that offer revenue growth for clubs and leagues, it's not domestic European audiences. The pay TV companies and you know mobile phone and broadband companies that have bankrolled the sport through these big broadcast deals, they're I mean they're tapped out. They're not they can't pay anymore and they haven't been paying more for years now. So there's no growth in those markets. The growth markets are Asia, you know. China, India, Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, and North America, the States and Canada. So what do those fans want is going to basically be the decisive question for the next decade of, 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 of football economics. And unsurprisingly, it turns out that, you know, teenagers in Thailand, India, Indonesia, China, they don't want to watch Dynamo Zagreb play Leicester City. They want to see Paris Saint-Germain play Bayern Munich, play Manchester United, play Liverpool. So the bargaining power of those top teams vis-a-vis the smaller teams and vis-a-vis the local leagues is only going in one direction. And the top teams basically can play the long game here. And now the second the second kind of prong of this financial thesis, which I think is, has been kind of neglected a little bit in the discussion of this, is that there was a very important clause in the documents which had been leaked to various media, which was basically saying that player spending, this is including transfer fees and wages to players, would be capped at 55% of salaries in this new Super League, at 55% of revenues in this new Super League. Now, this solves the biggest financial headache for club owners like the Glazers of Man United, like, you know, John Henry at Liverpool. The biggest financial headache you have is that any revenue growth you get, almost all of it goes straight out the door to the top talent, the agents, the, you know, the star players, your Mohamed Salahs, your Virgil van Dijk's. Um, and this is basically because those players are, are scarce and they have all the bargaining power in these relationships. If you could somehow mimic a kind of US sports cartel style structure with salary caps, you would be in a much better position as an owner of these clubs to keep the, um, the, the revenue increases that you think you're going to get from this globalization of the sport. Right. But the problem is, as you say, it, it kind of then saps all of the uh, resources and interest and, and finances away from that that tier. The, I mean, you named some of the clubs. I mean, I dare say Eindhoven is one of those clubs. No, Peter? Yes. Well, obviously, this is the um, uh, this is the sort of one of the things I think that upset a lot of the, the fans is sort of the apparently random nature of the choice of clubs so i mean you can it's pretty easy to say well real madrid they're a big they're a big team barcelona they've won it a few times manchester united they, they're always competing in the champions league but you know arsenal my team uh, uh they were in the 12 um you know i don't think anybody would really argue that they're like even in the top four in the in britain at the moment let alone in in the top 12 in europe uh tottenham hotspur um you know has, has barely even won the british league let alone the champions league or competed in the champions league so um it was a bit weird and then and then there are obviously clubs that were left out so the, the big absentees were uh the big german clubs including the current holders of the champions oh, league Bayern. Bayern munich um you know because we think probably because of the way that german sport is organized and it gives fans much more say in the way these clubs are run um paris saint-germain did not initially appear in this um, Ajax of Amsterdam, which has won the, champion, or the Champions League or the equivalent competition 
four times in its history, didn't appear. So there's, I think that's one of the things that really kind of annoyed people was that, that was that it was a sort of it appeared to be just a kind of a slightly random club, of a, a group of clubs um, which are sort of in the sort of wealthy league, but not necessarily the best performing ones or the ones that have historically done the best. And, well, if you took a ranking of revenue by club, would you basically that would basically you would reach this list, wouldn't you? Minus Bayern, Munich, Dortmund, you know, and a couple of randos, right? Yeah, more or less, more or less. I, I think that's right. I think that's right. But also, but it's also worth noting that, that the clubs that have the biggest revenue uh, haven't necessarily been the best performers. So Manchester United, which is which is commercially an incredibly successful club, has a big fan base, very successful at selling its its shirts all around the world. Um, they haven't been in the Champions League for a few years, you know. So, um, again, it's, it's, it's sort of, and I think that's sort of really what rankled, not just with the fans of the clubs who are in the group, but particularly the fans of the clubs who are outside it, it's the sort of the randomness and unfairness of the whole structure. And that really, I think, is meant, what meant it was doomed almost from the beginning. Right. And so, uh, Liam, you didn't disclose your, which team you support. Yeah, I mean, I will, I, will, I will do so by correcting Peter that Man United were in the Champions League this year, but we did unceremoniously get dumped out fairly early. So um, it's not much better, but yeah. And there you have it. Uh, well, good, guys. Thank you very much. Uh, this is a fascinating story. Uh, readers can't get enough of it, and I appreciate you guys spending time on the call for this. Thanks, Rob. Nice one. Thanks, all. Thanks, Rob. I'm Yuna Galani in Mumbai, and I'm joined by my colleague Pete Sweeney in Hong Kong. The Chinese bond market is in a tizzy because of worries that a state-owned bad bank might not be able to repay some of its $21 billion of U.S. dollar debt. Pete, why is this such a big deal and why should anybody care about a Chinese bad bank? Well, the answer is kind of related to the history of Huarong. So, I mean, investors are used at this point to seeing Chinese companies default. And we've had state-owned companies default. Huarong is sort of special because unlike, say, Baoshang Bank, which went bankrupt last year, Huarong is this key piece of Chinese financial history. It was founded in the wake of the global financial crisis. And that was when China's big state commercial banks had issued a bunch of terrible loans that had just gone bad and Beijing needed to recapitalize them. And so it founded four bad banks. Huarong was one of the biggest ones to basically take bad loans off their books and inject them. And they were basically supposed to be state own distressed asset managers, and that was it. And they were supposed to go out of business. They were supposed to deal with, deal with the assets and move on with life. Instead, Huarong and others kind of stuck around and started getting into other lines of business. And by 2018, that was a huge problem. Keeping in mind, it was very successful at selling itself. It got money from Warburg Pincus and Goldman Sachs, I think, put $2.4 billion into it together. But then by 2018, there were a lot of problems evident. Um, only 27% of its business was was uh, was going into distressed debt, and the rest was all over the place. And they were lending money to companies like H&A, Dandong Port, uh, Energy Thin Film Power, which themselves have gotten into a lot of trouble. So in 2018, companies started selling off assets, calling in loans. The government announced a, a probe into its, its chairman, uh, Lai Xiaomin. That probe went very badly for Lai, and he was executed at the beginning of this year for these fantastic corruption charges, hundreds of mistresses, houses filled with cash. So that is all blown up. Why it matters is because Huarong is a centrally backed enterprise. This is not just like some provincial 
badly managed provincial company or something like that. This is supposed it's half of it is owned by the, the Ministry of Finance. And if you look through the stock owners register, it's some of the top fund managers in the world. And it also it's part of this other family of sovereign and semi-sovereign bond issuers that were very popular among foreign investors. who were quite selective about buying bonds issued by Chinese private companies, but really liked buying you know companies that they saw as having some sort of backing from Beijing and had relatively high yields. And Huarong was a big issuer and it was super popular. And now it could all blow up and there's $20 billion of bonds at play. I mean, I just find that extraordinary. Like the idea that, I mean, Chinese companies or Asian companies or any companies going sort of belly up is one thing, but a state owned company that was actually designed to take the rot out of the system blowing up is another matter altogether. And I don't know. I mean, I always thought it was inconceivable until now that if you invested in a state-owned entity, you wouldn't get your money back. So what are the scenarios here? How could this really play out for bondholders? Well, so there's not actually a good precedent for this. And I think that's why we've seen such volatility. I mean, yields on bonds have just gone completely wild. They went up some one bond was paying like 226% at one point, And then the space of you know, two days came down dramatically. People just don't know. I mean, you had a similar case with Giddick, a Guangdong provincial SOE, which was also decades ago. That went down and foreign bondholders were forced to take massive haircuts. And more recently, we had, you know, Baoshang Bank, but Baoshang Bank had, was also not centrally controlled and, and was seen as kind of this, this exception. Beijing has been very vague on what it's going to do, probably for this reason. On the one hand, it's right. been trying to introduce... So if you're Beijing, how are you looking at this now? Like, what what are the pros and cons of doing anything? Okay, well, for one thing, you know, you could just, it's a state-owned thing, and then you can just bail everybody out. And then you kind of reinforce, you know, sort of moral hazard. I'm not sure how much moral hazard you have in a company that's half-owned by the Ministry of Finance. I mean, did anybody consider this to be a private company? I don't know. But that's very unlikely, um, especially given that they're going to, I mean, the thing is also they need to make their domestic bondholders well first. And so keeping in mind that the, all the stresses right. in the dollar market with the foreigners, that the, the, the comparison with the onshore market is totally stark. Like the Chinese domestic bond market did not ripple, well, barely rippled over this. So the market is obviously pricing in a high likelihood of some sort of big haircut coming for foreign dollar bondholders, but almost nothing for the yen bondholders. And that just suggests that Beijing is... Sorry, go yeah, ahead. In fact, didn't they just pay back some of the yuan denominated right. debt? They paid back yen loans, which is not a problem. And the central bank came out and said, well, you know, Huarong is operating normally and has adequate liquidity. But who knows what that means? The offshore entity, Huarong International, that has actually backed, uh, most, issued most of the dollar bonds, said it, it returned a profitability in the first quarter. But that's all it said, not a number. It didn't qualify what kind of profitability. We have no idea whether it's profitable enough to, to make good on all these, these obligations it has. And because it's arm length, arm's length from the parent, there's an argument that Beijing could just let the international obligation just go and be like, that's that's rough for you. But, I mean, the trade-off is that, you know, you've got China wants, still wants to deliver. It wants access to dollar markets, which are cheaper. You know, interest rates are, are cheaper in dollar terms than, than yen terms. And it doesn't want, like, this to reprice, you know, issues by, say, the China Development Bank, which helps fund the Belt and Road Initiative, or, you know, much less the other asset managers like Sinda, you know, who still need to raise these funds. So, um, so, so it's kind of a quandary. How real <laughs> is the good. prospect that, you know, that could really like tip over and sort of hurt the pricing of all these other state owned 
borrowers out there? Well, so there's there's been movements in a in a in an investment grade index that tracks um, you know Chinese issues dollar issues and that has fallen quite sharply. Um, but a lot of that is is you know ten cent went to the dollar market. Um, you know the, the internet giant and they did fine. You know nobody nobody worried about that. So there is some degree of selectivity. But I mean the the fact is that you know people liked the idea of getting relatively high yield from a company that was not ever going to default. <laughs> and, you know, without that, you've got companies like China Development Bank that's putting money through Belt and Road into some really hairy countries, you know, some really high-risk investments for policy reasons, not for profit. And, I mean, I think that investors would be quite wary of, of putting more money in that direction. And Beijing has to be worried about that as well. And I think that's why they're being kind of discreet about it. The most likely outcome, as we've seen from the past, is, is Beijing is going to make everybody kind of take a little bit of the pain. It's it's very unlikely that they will just let everybody take a bath on the dollar bonds. Um, but the question is the size of the haircut. Um, and and is know, there any precedent for that, the, the hair, size of haircuts well, in any I mean, kind you, of you, you followed Baoshang with me, and, um, you know, that was they, – they never were official about the haircuts, but local media said most people got – ended up with 10%. And I think that, like, if Huarong investors got that, um, you know, I think they would be – probably okay with it, even though, you know, Baoshang was not owned by the Ministry of Finance and Hua Rong is. And to be um, clear, the haircut is 10%, not the... Yeah, sorry, the yes. <laughs> right. Well, Baoshang went bankrupt and out of existence. There, I don't think there's any question that, that Hua Rong is just going to blow up and be... But it's going to... It's definitely going to be restructured in some form. Um, you know, so so there'll have to be some hard decisions to make. You know, but in the end, it's just, it's just a tough quandary that Beijing has put itself in because, you know, whose fault is it? You know, this this situation, is it is it the investors who, you know, should have caveat emptor and looked at me like, wow, you guys are backing some really flaky companies. And we can see from your 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 earnings reports that you're wandering into all sorts of unofficial areas that are not policy supported. You know, or is it that, you know, the Chinese government failed to to monitor this and stay on top of Huarong and let it do a bunch of things that it really should have never been allowed to do in the first place? And um that we'll have to watch very carefully what Beijing does, but I, I really do feel like they're just kind of feeling their way through this along with everybody else. All right. Well, thanks, Pete. Watch this space is the message, I think. Um, <laughs> thanks for joining me. Thanks, Ina. That's our show for the week. Thanks to our producer, Freddie Joyner in New York. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you go to get high-quality podcasts. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Thank you.